This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Are you looking to become an expert in your field? I think many of us obviously are. It usually means a greater level of of personal success and opportunity. And there are many people out there who are very good at what they do. Many times you end up saying that they just have a greater ability throughout their life. It just came naturally to them. With others, that ability came through hard work. Florida State professor Anders Ericsson has put together a book on the topic with journalist Robert Poole called Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And Anders joins us on the show right now. Professor Ericsson, great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, it's interesting in looking at, at your backstory, part of your life's work has really been really been trying to figure out what makes experts stand out from the rest, correct? That's exactly right. We're, we're first trying to identify people who can really do something, you know, again and again, that is better than their peers. And then we try to understand here, is there something in their background that can kind of explain how they were able to get to that point? You were part of this 10,000-hour uh, rule many years ago. And explain how you came about to that original, that belief. And, and I, I'm I sense through the book that, in some respects, you've come off of that 10,000-hour rule a bit. Well, you know, the 10,000-hour rule wasn't really our... Uh, uh, it was Malcolm Gladwell that yeah. read our work and basically thought, and he actually misinterpreted some of our findings, uh, where we actually found that violinists who had been at an international academy and was really viewed as being on track here for international careers, that when we estimated how many hours they actually had spent working on trying to improve their performance by themselves, we came up with an average across a group of 10,000 hours. Okay. But, but that really meant that there was a fair amount of variability. And I would argue that the key thing that I see that basically well, uh, people have misinterpreted, you know, it's not just a matter of basically accumulating hours. So, if you're doing your job and you get kind of just do more and more of the same, uh, you're not actually going to get better. And there's a lot of research to kind of really prove that. So with the musicians, you know, they were actually working with their teachers who constantly kind of prodded them to try to learn new things. Okay. And actually, so the time that they were spending alone were really trying to push the boundaries so they would, you know, gradually improve their performance while they were at the music academy. And that is the kind of argument that we're making. Just doing working harder or working more uh, actually does not seem to be associated with high levels of performance. But rather, if you're working with a teacher or a mentor that actually has attained this high level of performance, that individual can kind of help you now design the kind of training activities that may, they may actually have engaged in in order to reach that uh, higher level of performance. And this brings us to a term which is kind of the common theme in your book called, deli uh, the term is deliberate practice? Exactly. And, and we basically argue that when you're taking time off to work on improving one thing, 
and especially if that one thing actually has been, you know, agreed upon and recommended by your teacher, that is what we call deliberate practice. And we've found in many domains here that the amount of time that you actually engage in that type of fully concentrated work on really trying to push the bounds of what you can do, uh, that is correlated with how far people get. We're talking with Anders Erickson, professor of Florida State, about his book, Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, part of this, obviously, in, in terms of relating it to, uh, the, to, the mass, uh, to the masses, is you bring up uh, examples of, of, of athletes and, and musicians uh, that really kind of fill out this philosophy, but you also talk about the fact that this really does have correlation for a lot of people out there, and especially for the business world. Exactly. And, and it seems to me that the same methodology can be you know, applied to virtually any kind of uh, occupation. Now, most of the work that we talk about in the book are actually related to doctors, uh, and then they face kind of a problem here when they're in practice that they try to do their best but they really don't know if they were, you know, coming up with the exactly correct decision. You know, they only find out maybe months later that, you know, actually the diagnosis was different and should have, you know, ideally been associated with a different kind of treatment. So what we're arguing is that one could set up learning environments where people actually are encountering now data from old patients mm-hmm. for which we really know what was the problem. And then, you know, they can basically diagnose them and then get immediate feedback here to see if their diagnosis matched the correct one. I guess with doctors, it becomes even a tad more complicated because of uh, the pressures that they're under on a, on a daily basis and being able to gather, you know, all of that information from prior, uh, from prior patients uh, to be able to have that knowledge at their fingertips, correct? Right. So, so I think, you know, you would need to really invest here uh, and build up libraries of these past patients. And I've been involved in a couple of projects where they've actually done that. And, and what they're finding is that it becomes so much more effective to learn when you can actually make a mistake and then you can get all sorts of related patients that would allow you now to practice and make sure here that you correct the thing that caused the original problem. Right. If you're in you know, practice, there may be months before you see a similar kind of patient. And again here, you never really have that immediate feedback. Uh, so our argument is that you can apply that type of you know, feedback to sales jobs, uh, you know, where teachers, people who have actually demonstrated superior sales performance, would be able to kind of take a look at what you're doing and then give you feedback and then basically have you practice certain things and then come back and essentially gradually sort of refine what you're doing. I guess the interesting thing in terms of playing off of what you bring in the book is that there are a lot of people out there uh, that want to be better at their jobs. Uh, but, you know, they get to a certain point and they say, well, you know, I'm pretty good at my job, but they don't really look to take that next step. How hard is it to, to kind of break through, I guess, in some respects, what's a little bit of a barrier, correct? Right. And, and I think, you know, that some of the really uh, 
great companies, they seem to realize that everyone will be gaining if you're giving support for training. Right. And I think that's one of the problems is that there really isn't, you know, the kind of training environments and time taken off where you can actually put in on training because we know that in order to get benefits from training, you really need to be fully concentrated. So if you're actually trying to do that on your lunch hour, you know, relaxing, uh, there's really going to be very minor benefits from that. In some respects, have businesses started to figure that out anyway because they realize how valuable employees are and, and they're realizing that they're more valuable? And I say that because we've talked on the show about, you know, the problems of, of HR departments, you know, the, the cost of of HR departments having to go out and constantly hire new employees because employees are leaving for better opportunities. It's, you know, it's a, it's a big factor on the bottom line of a company. So if you can keep an employee and help them get better at their job, it helps the bottom line on a couple of different fronts. Right. And, and I personally find that those people who are really involved in this improvement, you know, that gives a lot of personal satisfaction. I guess in particular if you're in the healthcare business where, you know, what you do actually have direct consequences on the patients. And, and actually getting the sense here from direct kind of contacts with patients that you're actually doing something that benefits people beyond yourself, I think is really satisfying. And, and I believe that basically taking this kind of approach that you, we see primarily now in domains like music sports where there's a lot of individual you know training yeah. because there you see the ratio between training and performance you know you probably perform less than one percent of the time that you spend training whereas in the real business you know it's more like 99 percent performance and one percent training uh, we're talking with Anders Ericsson, who is the uh, co-author of the book Peak, Secrets from the New Expertise, uh, New Science of Expertise, along with Robert Poole. Your comments are welcome. If you'd like to jump in and ask a question, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, you also talk about how this could be a potential good approach for school systems as well to, to help improve school systems uh, in the future. Right. You know, I think much of the school systems are based on, you know, having uh, students learn knowledge and facts, and then they get tested on the facts. I feel here that basically when you look at expert performers, they're really more interested in learning how to do something uh, and so to build up skill. Uh, and I think there's some really great examples in physics where instead of having the lecturers give the same lecture every year, uh, to a large group of students, you know, the students can actually see that video uh, on basically when they're at home. And then when the teacher meets with the students, they can actually now try to apply this knowledge to be able to sort of show the students how you can think appropriately right. about events, you know, and, and phenomena that you will encounter in the real world. How important, though, I mean, could that potentially be for improving school systems in general over the next 30 or 40 years? Because, I mean, I mean certainly when you think about a, a lot of the big cities in the United States that have issues, uh, improving schools, I mean, if there's lots of financial issues with them as well, but improving the schools seemingly is right at the top of the list. Right. And, and it seems to me that showing uh, students, you know, how they can actually use the knowledge directly and get away from, 
this memorizing where they memorize something and then they forget it, you know, within a year, and then they memorize it again. Uh, instead of that, you know, helping the students build up skills so they actually feel that they're learning something that's going to be really useful for them, you know, in their daily lives and, and even as adults. And I think that, you know, basically looking for motivation and helping students really become, you know, able to act appropriately, uh, you know, in the world and, and, and sort of almost feel more self-confident as they're gaining that skill. That, I think, is, is really important. And I think now with the new technology, you know, you, you don't have to have sort of just textbooks. You can actually create simulated environments right. where, you know, students can actually practice and demonstrate their ability to deal with, you know, the kind of problems of finance or making judgments about probability or whatever, as opposed to keeping it as a clearly academic, uh, you know, activity that is only marginally related to the real world. Can can taking that approach, let's just say for somebody that's, you know, working a, a, a nine to five job and, and they like to go out and, you know, play golf on the weekend. Can, can being a better golfer and perfecting that ability end up starting to lead and help that person think that, that that greater ability can carry over and they can be better in their work as well? You know, I think that's a great idea and something that we feel that if you help somebody get very good at a domain, they actually learn a lot about effective learning and, and basically how you don't basically spend more time than you can fully concentrate. I think it's a problem that people often, you know, spend four or five hours when they want to learn something. Uh, when the more effective, if you want to have that maximum concentration, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes is the more appropriate time that you should focus in if you really want to be at the edge of what you can do. So if we can help people get good at various domains, I think you're going to learn uh, basically the things that are mediating their performance. And especially we talk in the book about mental representations. You know, so, so essentially you become more capable of thinking about the situations you're in mm -hmm. and also monitor what you're doing so you can, if something goes wrong, yeah. you're able to figure out what you need to be thinking differently next time you encounter a similar situation. You talk about about Mozart uh, and his abilities that he had. How does he figure into this whole process? Well, you know, we've been looking for sort of counterexamples because I think there is a belief among many here that, you know, some people are just born gifted. Uh, and when we look carefully at, you know, and I think Mozart may be one of the examples that comes to mind for most people, if we look at the background of Mozart, we find that he actually, you know, his father was one of the pioneering teachers and designers of education for young children uh, that would allow them to actually play music. And some of the abilities that Mozart had, and I guess we talk about perfect pitch, which is something that, you know, typically only, you know, very good musicians have, but not all of them do. Uh, and that seems to be one of those kind of curious abilities that adults can acquire, even if they spend a fair, fair amount of time trying to do so. So people thought that was actually innate. Now, research have now shown that there's 
like a developmental window between ages three and five. And if you train kids during that period, it seems like any child can acquire perfect pitch. Hmm. As you get older, then the brain changes, and those kids who train pitch, it's sort of like the bent twig, their brains are going to be slightly different, so they actually are capable now of, uh, you know, preserving this ability of identifying uh, tones. And, and I, I guess that explains now with Mozart, he started so early on with his music training uh, on a piano where you actually learn, you know, the association between tones and keys. Uh, so that sort of explains that magical ability. And I would say in general, once you start looking at what people have learned about effective training techniques, there's a lot of things that go against this idea that, you know, you kind of start by yourself and then you just try harder or work on it longer. Uh, and what we find is that you really need the guidance of a teacher to help you get the fundamentals and also identify those training techniques that experience have found to be so more more effective than the kind of techniques that people spontaneously uh, would apply. Going back to, to something you touched on at the top uh, is the fact that if you are looking to get better at something, wh whatever that might be, is to really kind of seek, uh, seek out a teacher of some kind to help you with that process. Exactly. And I think that's very validating to see other individuals who have actually gone through this journey, uh, and especially with good teachers, you know, they have guided students, a large number of students along this path. And I think that gives you the confidence here that you're not going to run into an obstacle because the teacher is going to be able to figure out what is it that is problematic for you. And I think that's a intriguing finding that we can't find any sort of limiting factors that people really can't surpass here with the right kind of training. And, uh, you know, with the exception of body size, uh, you can't train to be taller. Sure. Yes, uh, that's right. But, but there's very few things where training really can't modify uh, basically the outcome, especially if you train at certain types of ages. The only way you can get people taller is to throw them back on the rack like they did back in the olden days, right? <laughs> well, I, I think if you do that, you might break their backs, and they're not going to be very helpful in sports anyway. <laughs> That's true. Exactly right. Uh, but but it, it is important you bring up the fact that as somebody goes along the path of, uh, of trying to improve themselves and get better is to really learn from the successes that they have along the way as well. Right. You know, and, and there are communities of learning, like in music, where they've actually codified and come up here with, you know, the best paths. And what's interesting is that even prodigies follow that same path. It's just that they typically start with training earlier and, and are encouraged to training more. So they actually reach high levels faster or at younger ages, I should say. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. We're talking with Anders Ericsson, who is the author of the book, along with Robert Poole of Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. Uh, but realistically, the, the ability for people to improve and to get better at whatever they're looking to get better at, it's there for everyone. This is not an exclusive kind of concept here. No, and, and I think that's the most exciting trend that I've seen here in the last five years is that people are now 
kind of really starting their own personal projects of getting better at things that are really important to them. And we talk about a few examples in the book, uh, but along the time here, just since we finished the book manuscript, I've had contact with a lot of people. And, And I think it's really so satisfying to find that individuals who thought that they really couldn't become good at maybe, for example, drawing is one of the things that where you can get actually so good that you can actually make drawings and give them as gifts to people after about two to four hundred hours of of training. And and I think, you know, that's, you know, this way here of finding activities that will, you know, allow you to develop and and actually, uh, you know, experience things that you wouldn't have if you didn't have these methods for, you know, expressing yourself. Uh, But I think, you know, art, sports, but also just professionally, you know, thinking through here how people that you admire and then figure out what they're doing and then being able to learn from them. Great to have you on the show, Honors. It's a very interesting book. Thank you very much for giving us your time today. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.